0: It's a privilege to welcome some brethren with us this morning who were not with us for our previous sessions, and we trust that very soon you men will feel a part of us as we continue wrestling with this vital issue that is before us. Let's again acknowledge our need of the Lord's present grace, thank him for a good night of rest, and plead for all needed grace for the day before us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that your mercies are indeed new every morning and that great is your faithfulness. We bless and praise you for the rest of the past night. We thank you for bringing us in safety here this morning. We thank you that you have given us sufficient physical health and the composure of our mental faculties that we are able to gather and to give ourselves to the discipline of wrestling with your word. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit will once again come upon us, upon me, as I seek to open up your word, seek to pass on the wisdom of past generations For these, my brothers, as together we seek to know your mind and your will, O Lord, come to us with every needed dimension of the Spirit's operation upon our minds, upon our judgment, upon our affections, upon our wills, upon the purposes that we frame in our hearts. According to your own promise, work in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And we believe in asking this. We are asking something agreeable to your will. And therefore, we plead the promise that if we ask anything according to your will, we know that you hear us. And if we know that you hear us, we know we have the petitions we desire of you. In that confidence, we commit ourselves in this hour to you in the expectation of faith through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Amen. 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 Well, in our initial session yesterday, brethren, we began with a general introduction to the entire course in pastoral theology. I then proceeded to give an explanation for the title of Unit 1, namely, The Call of the Man of God to the Pastoral Office. I followed that by examining the biblical warrant for addressing the subject and bore my heart with regard to some of my personal fears in making an effort to handle this oft-vexing subject of what constitutes a biblical and an orderly call to the pastoral office. I concluded our second session yesterday by identifying three foundational principles which must regulate our thinking and our conduct with respect to this vital issue of what does indeed constitute a biblical and an orderly call to the pastoral office. Now in this hour, I hope to set before you two major issues. Number one, what I believe are the fundamental errors with respect to what does indeed constitute a biblical and orderly call to the pastoral office, and then growing out of those fundamental errors of perspective. Secondly, some common, your notes have the word false reasons. I've not been comfortable with that even since we upgraded your notes. And in the earlier hours of the morning, I want that wording changed to some common unbiblical and unrighteous reasons for pursuing The pastoral office. So rather than some common false reasons, change it please to unbiblical and unrighteous reasons. Subtitled, Why Johnny Seeks to Be a Pastor Preacher When He Ought Not to Do So. So we come then to the fundamental errors with respect to what constitutes a call to the pastoral office. And my purpose under this heading is to attempt to collate into several broad categories the errors or unbiblical perspectives which have existed and yet exist with respect to this question, what constitutes a biblical and an orderly call to this office? Others have gone before me in seeking to do this very thing, and we have a very helpful example from church history, in Volume 4 of Thornwell's Collected Writings, there appears an essay by Thornwell entitled, The Call of the Minister, in which Thornwell is assessing the insights of Dr. Breckinridge contained in what began as three sermons that Breckinridge preached on the subject of the call to the ministry. And you have in your uh, quotes provided for you uh, this statement beginning in that essay by Dr. Thornwell. Dr. Breckinridge's pamphlet consists of three separate tracts, all bearing directly upon questions which have recently agitated in reference to the polity of the Presbyterian Church. The first is a sermon preached, and then he tells us the second and the third. And so the concern of Dr. Breckinridge was to address what he regarded as some prevailing errors with respect to this very question with which we are wrestling. And then in his sermons... Thornwell summarizes the fact that Dr. Breckinridge proceeds to the immediate subject of his sermon, the nature and evidence of a call to the ministry of the Word. I'm now quoting on page 23 of volume 4 of Thornwell. He first exposes the futility of three prominent theories to which almost every form of error on this great subject may be ultimately reduced. All pretensions which are not founded upon a real call of God, properly authenticated according to the provisions of his word, must either, and then here are the three errors that Breckinridge identifies. And Breckinridge says all errors on this can be subsumed under one of these three headings. Number one. These things must proceed either from a claim to be extraordinary and then extraordinary evidence should be produced or number two, they rest upon a perpetual succession which is transmitted the rights and properties of the office from Christ the head through an unbroken line of office bearers to the present incumbent and then the succession becomes a question of fact to be proved by testimony and the validity of the title founded upon it, a doctrine to be established by Scripture, and then the third major error, or they rest upon the conviction and belief of the individual himself unsupported by any proof but his own extravagance or enthusiasm. These false pretensions to official authority are briefly but ably discussed. To reduce Dr. Breckinridge's uh, analysis to more simple language, I would say that Breckinridge asserts that there is the fanatical claim to special revelation validating a man's call to this office. There is the theory of apostolic succession warranting that a man should be placed in the office. And then there are the claims of crass individualism. Now based upon the observations and critical analysis of others and upon my own observations and interaction with men over the years, I would suggest that the vast majority of errors with respect to what constitutes a biblical and orderly call to the pastoral office can be subsumed under not the three headings, of Dr. Breckenridge, but under four headings that I will set before you. And the first, I am calling ignorance or uninstructed zeal. Ignorance or uninstructed zeal. Men assume they are called to the pastoral office or often called to preach or called to the ministry because of an uninstructed ignorance and zeal. And here I refer to Romans chapter 10, where Paul, speaking of his fellow Jews, says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It is indeed possible to be zealous in pursuit of something that in itself is a noble thing, but to pursue it in ignorance and uninstructed zeal. And so often what happens is a man, often a young man, who's been genuinely converted and is manifesting only the fundamental fruits of true conversion, a passionate love for Christ, a love for the souls of men, a desire to serve Christ, a desire to communicate the truth of Christ. And people beholding this say, oh, God's hand must be upon you for the work of the ministry. And while this neophyte is ignorant of the high and demanding uh, scriptural standard of what's involved in the office of the eldership, ignorant of what is involved in being able to do what Titus 1, nine says, holding fast that faithful word that he may be able both to exhort in the healthy teaching and to refute the gainsayers. He has no concept of what's involved in becoming what 2 Timothy 2.15 demands, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, cutting a straight course in the word of truth. He has no idea to fulfill the biblical requirement of 1 Timothy 3, 4, a proven leader who may be able to take care of the church of God, to fulfill the exhortation of Acts twenty twenty eight, to take heed to the flock of God, to be able to protect it from perverse men from within, wolves from without. And this young man, often a young man, ignorant and uninstructed with respect to what is involved, is encouraged to pursue that office before the most fundamental issues of Christian character are well established in his redeemed humanity. And then, in my judgment, there is a second false ...perspective or fundamental error with respect to the call to the ministry... ...and it's what I'm identifying as fanaticism or mystical piety. People who claim to have had a series of signs or a string of providences... ...which they have infallibly interpreted as God's finger pointing them... ...in the direction of pursuing or assuming the pastoral office... Now, whether it's just one of those proverbial things or one of those anecdotal things that has no root, in fact, I can believe it may have happened, the farmer who is giving himself to his role as a farmer and one day looks up and in the clouds he thinks he sees three letters, a G and a P and a C. And he drops his plowing and says, Ah, God is telling me, go, go preach Christ. But thankfully, someone with a little more discernment when hearing his story said, son, could it be that God was telling you, go pick corn? Well, you see, there's as much validity in interpreting the shape of the clouds as go preach Christ, as go preach corn. And then there's the man who loses his job. An infant child dies, and he assumes that God is chastening because he's a Jonah running away from, quote, the call. So often I've heard this. Men say, I ran away from the call, and God did this, and God did this, and finally I caved in, and I knew God had called me. Without one reference to the biblical standards for the pastoral office. No reference to the quality control of the church perceiving gifts and graces. This infallible interpretation of these negative providences which were assumed to be God's voice calling to the ministry. And examples of that are legion. And under this heading of fanaticism or mystical piety is when people are reading their Bibles and a peculiar text jumps out and grips them. And they are convinced that that was the voice of God calling them into the ministry. Then there is a third category of the fundamental errors with respect to what constitutes a valid call. And it's what I'm identifying as individualism or atomistic Christianity. People who have sought to make judgments based on the word but in total isolation from the body of Christ they have taken Romans twelve three seriously. That they have a personal responsibility to make a self-assessment of their giftedness. However, they have forgotten that the context of that imperative is one of the most rich passages on the church being constituted a body. And if we read on from verse 3, the whole setting is the individual assessing himself in the context of the body of Christ. And I like to think of the body of Christ as the quality control upon my personal self-assessment. Now, I might get a computer, and because I've been fascinating with flying for many, many years, get one of those programs that teaches you how to fly. And you can learn how to fly sitting at your computer, And so in my enthusiasm to fly, the next time I get on a jetliner, I stand up as the plane is making its way uh, to its holding pattern to get ready to take off at the end of the runway. I stand up and say, folks, I want you to know something. I really believe I know how to fly this thing. And I'd like to take you from here to Chicago. Chicago. Well, I might have a personal self-assessment of my ability, but I can clue you, if that plane's got 200 people on it, there'll be a quality control on my personal self-assessment. <laughs> Sit down, you nut. You're not taking this thing up into the air. We want to get to Chicago. Well, you see, in a similar way, God intends that my self-assessment should be carried on and carried out in the context of the body. However, we live in a day when there is crass individualism and often men assume they are called to the pastoral office because of this individualism or atomistic Christianity and they fail to take heed to such warnings as Proverbs 18 and verse 1. He that separates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all Sound wisdom. And you will find men who will go from place to place until they can get people to agree with their ultimate atomistic, individualistic perspective of their giftedness and calling to the office of pastor. Even Paul did not trust his own independent judgment with regard to a relatively younger man by the name of Timothy. In Acts chapter 16, we have a passage that ought to be brought into consideration when we are wrestling with this and seeking to help particularly young men to wrestle with this question. Acts 16, verse 1. And he, Paul, came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish that believed, but his father was a Greek. The same was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him. Now obviously Paul saw things that greatly impressed him. But he took time to find out whether or not his perspectives lined up with those who had known Timothy for a longer period of time and in greater depth and in greater breadth. And I'm convinced that many a man misses his call not only because of ignorance and lack of instruction. He has uninstructed zeal, but there is fanaticism or mystical piety and this individualism or atomistic Christianity. And then fourthly, there is what I'm calling pragmatism or a rationalistic ecclesiology, this whole matter of who should go into the ministry is dealt with as though the church were a corporation. Fix your eye on the sharp young man that seems to have the charisma of leadership. Fix your eye on the young man that's got the gift of gab and then condition him to become CEO in a church somewhere. There is no real conviction of those passages that say the church... Purchased with the blood of Christ in which the Holy Spirit has placed you as overseers. Very little thought to what is it to discern whether Christ is fashioning a man that Christ might deposit him as a gift in his church. And there is a pragmatic rationalistic ecclesiology that operates pumping men into the work of the ministry perhaps the man who's had some prominence in the athletic field in the business field in the medical field and there's the assumption that competence in these fields form a legitimate foundation for competence in the ministry and brethren that's nonsense it's sheer nonsense the transferal of competence on the football field to competence for the work of the ministry is nonsense Granted, there may be certain disciplines a man learns on the football field, in some other athletic pursuit, in some other business or medical pursuit, which if other things that are biblical indicate he ought to pursue the office of a pastor, those things may be part of what God has woven into the fabric of his life to make him competent, but the competence does not rest upon proven Competence in those other fields. And so I would urge you, my brethren, to think through those issues, not only with regard to yourself, but in the influence that God may be pleased to give you as you work with others. Now, then, growing out of those fundamental uh, areas, those four perspectives that I believe are unbiblical. I want to come in the second place to these common, no longer false, but you've written into your notes, common, unbiblical, and unrighteous reasons for pursuing the office of a teaching elder in Christ Church. Again, as I've observed, discussed, read, wrestled, listened, as men have interacted with me personally, agitated, and Concerned about this issue, it appears to me that there are at least seven categories which comprise the spectrum of unbiblical or unrighteous or wrong reasons why either men aspire to the office or have actually believed themselves called to this office. And brethren, as we come to them, I urge you to pray afresh in the language of Psalm 139. Search me. O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And that God would unearth, perhaps in us, some of these unbiblical or unrighteous reasons for either aspiring to or assuming we have been placed by God into the office of an overseer. And I urge you to do so not only with the spirit of David's prayer in Psalm 139, but the attitude of those in Acts 1 when they are seeking to discern the mind of God with respect to who should take the place of Judas and they address God as the God who knows the hearts of all men. He knows my heart. He knows yours. And as I have worked and reworked over these things through the years, I tried to put them in various categories, those rooted in heart and head and external pressure, those rooted in ignorance, bad teaching, but the things so overlap and interpenetrate that I've given up putting them in categories, and so I'm just going to lay them out before you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and there's no specific significance in the order. You could put them all in a hat and shuffle them and bring them out in a different order, and I don't think it would in any way affect what I trust is an accurate and Biblical perspective on the issues. Number one, of those unbiblical and unrighteous reasons for pursuing or assuming a call to the pastoral office, number one, the pressure of a falsely instructed conscience. The men who sat under my ministry in the academy know that one of the major emphases in my instruction had to do with the maintenance of a good conscience toward God and toward man. The scriptures are clear that the first step to apostasy is giving up a good conscience. Paul speaks of this explicitly in his letter to Timothy, of those who having cast aside a good conscience eventually make shipwreck concerning the faith. Our consciences are the eyelash of God upon the soul with respect to our moral choices and our moral actions. The great apostle could say in Acts 24, 16, Herein do I constantly exercise myself to have at all times a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. However the Bible that gives us that doctrine of conscience and its very critical place in healthy Christian living, the same Bible makes it clear that sin has so affected the totality of what we are, both when sin reigned and as sin remains in us as believers, that there is no department of our redeemed humanity that is not affected by remaining sin. And though the claims of conscience are always supreme and magisterial, and we must never violate them, they are not infallible or perfect. The Bible speaks of a weak conscience in 1 Corinthians 8, 4-7, to and verse 12. And the conscience must continually be instructed and under the tutelage of the Word of God written. However... When conscience is even speaking falsely, whatsoever is not out of faith, and in the context, that means, context of Romans 14 23, whatever is not done with a good conscience at the point where I am in the light that I have, impinging upon my conscience, whatever is not of faith is sin. And I believe there are men aspiring to the ministry and actually in the ministry because of the pressure of a falsely Instructed conscience. Their consciences were conditioned as young believers to believe that if they were sold out to Christ, they would aspire first of all to be missionaries, secondly, pastors, thirdly, devoted laymen raising kids to be pastors or missionaries, and then if you were just an ordinary Christian. You just sort of lay back and just go to church, sing the hymns, pay your tithe, and live a decent life. Now that's not theoretical. I was reared spiritually in that context. And it took a long while to get my conscience properly instructed with regard to these matters. So when dealing with such people, we must seek to instruct the conscience by the light of God's truth. You remember the Apostle Paul could say in Acts 26 in verse 9, he thought he was pleasing God when he was running around ripping mothers away from their kids and fathers away from their children, putting them in prison. He said, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things. I ought to do. He was under the compulsion of a falsely instructed conscience. Jesus said in John 16, two, the time will come when those who kill you will think they do priestly service to God. Present the blood of martyrs and say, oh God, here is the fruit of my service to you. That's how skewed the conscience can be. And so we need lovingly and tenderly to sit down with brothers who feel they are, quote, Called to the ministry or inclined to pursue training for the ministry and make sure that they are not doing so under the pressure of a falsely instructed conscience. Secondly, here's a second unbiblical and unrighteous reason to pursue this office, the pressure of the unwise and sometimes unsanctified ambitions of other people. I have known of situations where there are mothers and fathers who because they could not get to the mission field because being married and having normal sexual relations, they began to have kids. So they said, oh Lord, we can't go and have first bests. We'll take second bests. We'll raise missionaries. And they reared their children, conditioning the consciences of their children to be missionaries or preachers. And there are people who come into maturity under the pressure of this unwise and sometimes unsanctified ambition, noble in itself, but unwise, unsanctified, that they should pursue the ministry. And this is not something new. In his excellent little booklet, uh, Samuel Miller's booklet on an able ministry, he writes, and here I cannot help Bearing testimony against what appears to me a dangerous mistake, which, though it may not be common, yet sometimes occurs among parents and guardians of the more serious class. I mean the mistake of destining young persons to the gospel ministry from a very early period of life before they can be supposed from any enlightened view of the subject to concur in the choice themselves and before they give any satisfactory evidence of vital piety. Brethren, I venerate the parent who desires and daily prays that it may please God to prepare and dispose this child to serve him in the ministry of reconciliation. Nay, I think that that parent worthy of the thanks of every friend to religion who solemnly devotes his child even from the earliest period of his life to the service of the church and avowedly conducts every part of his education with a view to this great object, provided provided the original consecration and every subsequent arrangement is made on the condition carefully and frequently expressed as well as implied that God shall be pleased to sanction and accept the offering by imparting his grace and giving a heart to love and desire the sacred work. But there is a wide difference between this and resolving that a particular son shall be a minister in the same manner and on the same principles as another is devoted to the medical profession or to the bar as a respectable employment in life without recognizing vital piety and the deliberate choice of the ministry from religious motives as indispensable qualifications. This kind of destination to the sacred office is as dangerous as it is unwarranted. I cannot improve upon those sagacious words of Samuel Miller. And so, in your dealings with people, probe to make sure that they are not under the pressure of unwise and unsanctified ambition of others. Sometimes it comes from pastors who, when they can say very humbly, of course, well, I've got four men in seminary preparing for the ministry. Well, how'd they get there? This pastor whom they loved and esteemed, who's been like a father to them, was constantly putting unwise, unbiblical, unsanctified pressure upon them so that they began to subtly feel the only way I can please my spiritual father is to pursue the ministry. Not my heavenly father, but my spiritual earthly father. Thirdly, a third unbiblical, unrighteous reason to pursue this labor is the presence of unbalanced and unbiblical concepts of spirituality, the presence of unbalanced and unbiblical concepts of spirituality. Because the Bible does speak of the relative worth of various gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he that prophesies is greater than he that speaks in tongues. And then when the various gifts are listed, there seems to be an order of priority, of extensiveness, of usefulness in the body of Christ. And people observe that those who exercise public gifts have a place of more extensive influence to promote the glory of God and the kingdom of God someone then begins to subtly assume that wider public usefulness is the way to or necessarily expressive of a higher level of spirituality. And that understanding is not supported by the Word of God. For example, in Romans 12, the chapter begins with all of God's redeemed on equal footing, Their hearts overwhelmed and suffused with the wonder of the mercies of God in the salvation that Paul has been expounding. We all take our posture upon that altar as living sacrifices presenting the totality of our redeemed humanity unto God as a living sacrifice determined by the grace of God we will not be pressed into the mold of this world in any area of life, but be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the Word, in the Spirit's application of the Word, in the fellowship of the church, under the disciplines of affliction and trial, in all those means. Then Paul says, and I say to every man among you, and then we're to assess our individuality in terms of our giftedness, But you see, it's giftedness in the total function of the body. And there is no indication that the one who who comes to a sober assessment that his giftedness is in giving is any less totally on the altar than the one who assesses he has the gift of exhortation, of prophecy, or any other gift. There's no such assumption that the identity of gift somehow puts us on a scale of spirituality. It's interesting that when the people of God are generically urged to continue to be filled with the Spirit, how is that fullness of the Spirit expressed? Be filled with the Spirit, speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ, wives, husbands, masters, servants. True spirituality is measured not in terms of great giftedness of public ministry, but in practical Christ-likeness in the horizontal relationships into which God has sovereignly Placed us. So don't create a climate in which those under your ministry assume that spiritual vigor, stature, is in any way, are in any way related to specific gifts or offices and that they are coextensive. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. Did not Jesus say in Matthew 7 21 and 22, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven, many. This is what frightens me, brethren, many, many, many. The same word used up in 7, 13 and 14. Wide the gate, broad the way, leading to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat, the Lord now says, and of the many that go into the wide gate of spurious spiritual experience and walk the wide road of carnal, self-centered indulgence and end up in destruction, of that many, many will be exceedingly gifted. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? That's not liberal's. They don't believe there's anything significant in the self-revelation of Jesus as incarnate deity. They preach in the name of pop psychology. They preach in the name of their own stupidness, stupidity. But they say, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. These are people that believe that there are demonic Powers that are operative in human personalities and causing people to come under the powers of darkness. And they've seen those powers broken by their mouth. In your name we cast out demons. And in your name did many mighty works. Works that validated that Jesus is who he is. Then will I profess unto them, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. You had ministerial gifts and manifest ministerial success, but you had no transforming grace in your heart making you holy men. You continued to gawk at your pornography in secret in your pastor's study year after year after year. You continued in ways of secret sin. You were never firmly planted in the way of gospel holiness and growing conformity to Christ. Brethren, we leave the door wide open for men to fall into that snare of the devil if we give the impression that public profile in ministry equals a higher level of spirituality. It doesn't. Well, then we come fourthly, a fourth unbiblical and unrighteous reason both to pursue the office or assume one ought to be in the office. And it's what I'm calling an inaccurate assessment of ourselves and of our gifts. We come back to one of the texts used in establishing the warrant for addressing this subject, Romans 12 and verse 3. I say to every man among you, the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but so to think as to think soberly, according as God has dealt to each man a measure of faith." Now this matter of accurate self-assessment is not easy. Paul continually emphasizes the necessity of sober thinking which means as a man who's sober and whose brain functions are not altered and skewed by an accumulation of alcohol in his brain so that he sees pink elephants instead of pretty preachers sitting before him, this sober thinking is not so easy. It's not so easy because our remaining sin is sin in which pride is still operative in the heart. And Paul assumes that that would be the great enemy Not that the majority would think more lowly than they ought to think, but would think more highly, but nonetheless, the other is at least inferred. And what pride does is it operates on my self-assessment like a crazy mirror in the funhouse operates on my appearance. You've been in the funhouse where they have the crazy mirror, and you look in there, and there are enough features that you know it's you but you're four feet wide and 10 feet tall and shaped like a figure S, like a letter "S. It, it's a distortion of who you really are. Now you see yourself, yeah, that's me, but you're not seeing me as me really is. You're seeing me as the mirror distorts that image. And that's what pride does. When we go to take Romans 12:3 seriously, pride will so operate. And the deceitfulness of the heart. For remember what dominates in the unregenerate. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Though in regeneration that disposition no longer reigns. It remains and it still remains as deceitful. It doesn't change into truthful. And so because of pride we can have this skewed assessment of who we are. And then Added to pride can be ignorance because so little real preaching and wise, responsible oversight is exercised in our day. Men assume that they may be competent only because there's been such a low standard all around them and they've had nothing to expose the fact that they are far from competent for that office. And so we must cry to God to remove our pride, our ignorance. And we must humbly and graciously seek the help of others. Listen to Spurgeon, page 29, call to the ministry. We must, however, do much more than put it to our own conscience for judgment. For we are poor judges. A certain class of brethren have a great facility for discovering that they have been wonderfully and divinely helped in their declamations. (laughs) I should envy them their glorious liberty and self-complacency if there were any ground for it. For alas, I very frequently have to bemoan and mourn over my non-success and shortcomings as a speaker. There's not much dependence to be placed upon our own opinion... But much may be learned from judicious, spiritually minded persons. It is by no means a law which ought to bind all persons. But still, it is a good old custom in many of our country churches. He's talking about the situation in the Baptist churches of his day. A good old custom for the young man who aspires to the ministry to preach before the church. It can hardly ever be a very pleasant ordeal for the youthful aspirant and in many cases it will scarcely be a very edifying exercise for the people. But still it may prove a most salutary piece of discipline and save the public exposure of rampant ignorance. And then he goes on to give examples of this even in his own case." Now I must hasten on with just five minutes left, brethren, to address the final three. Number five, what I'm calling an unmet psychological need for personal identity. And here you'll forgive me for sticking much closer now to uh, to my text so that I can get these things in and end the lecture where I hope to. An unmet psychological need for personal identity. The reason some kids become bullies or oddballs in one way or another is because they don't know who they are as image bearers of God. And often men move, come into manhood and these quirks are there that began to be woven into the texture of their being as young people. And sometimes for one reason or another there are men who assume that if they could have the position and office of the ministry they would have a level of acceptance and recognition not based upon who they are because they're not sure who they are but upon what they do among the people who admire people who do what they desire to do if they end up in the ministry. Or they feel that if they be given a platform to express their views they may gain some identity in connection with their contribution to the field of truth. Well, I say, brethren, the pastor, it is no place in which to seek what can only be found in coming to grips with some great fundamental issues bound up in the biblical doctrines of man and salvation. In other words, the answer to an unmet need for personal identity is not found in ecclesiology, but in anthropology and soteriology. Have your doctrine of who I am as image of God and your doctrine of who and what I am in Christ, have that firmly established, then you know who you are. You don't need the ministry to find your identity or to secure your identity. Periodically, I ask myself, what would happen if during my sleep, the blood vessel in my brain that controls the motor function of my tongue should burst, and I have a stroke, and I wake up in the morning, I can never put two words together again. Would it change one bit of who Al Martin is? And when I can say, oh Lord Jesus, no. Who I am is what I am as a man. A man in Christ. What I do with this tongue is who I am in my function. In the body of Christ. It doesn't touch my essential identity. That's secure as image of God as one in union with Christ. And brethren, that's liberating. That's liberating. And you may have to help men who have not yet come to that liberation. But then in the sixth place... Another unbiblical, unrighteous reason to pursue the ministry is an inaccurate and inadequate view of the breadth of the biblical qualifications for the pastoral office. And since I'll be addressing this in the subsequent lectures, I'll just state the heading. An inaccurate and inadequate view of the breadth of the biblical qualifications for the pastoral office Hence, we come back to my title. It is not merely a call to preach. It is a call to assume that office in the breadth and depth and extent of its responsibilities. And we are to approach it with sound judgment, with sober-mindedness. And then number seven. This I'm identifying as an unmortified lust for the authority and attention and influence and monetary gain in connection with the pastoral office. This was the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 6 and 7. It's the very thing Peter says must not motivate elders, not for base gain, never for base gain, never to lord it down upon the people of God, a lust for authority, Or attention. These are base and ungodly motives, and may God grant that as we have influence with men, we will do all within our power to search them out by the Word of God to make sure that they are not being moved toward this office by unmortified lust for the authority, attention, influence, and monetary gain often connected with it. Well, our time is gone. Let's pray that God will seal these things to our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that your word is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you that with the psalmist we can say, Moreover, by your precepts, your servants are warned. And in the keeping of them, there is great reward. O Father, seal to our hearts the things we have wrestled with in this hour and may they prove profitable in our lives and in the lives of those to whom we minister. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.